Good morning. It's a Tuesday. Kale and Company live right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Great to have you along with us. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at Delta Dental Covers Me. Dot com. Well, last night I had a chance with uh, no sporting events uh, that I really cared about on television. No Celtics, no Red Sox. Had a chance to uh, go over to uh, St. Anselm College and uh, attend a town hall, hall meeting uh, featuring South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. I'm sure many of you are familiar with him, with his uh, uh, television appearances on uh, various uh, news outlets. He is the only black Republican senator, just three black senators uh, right now serving. Uh, Tim Scott was at St. Anselm last night, had a chance to see uh, Neil Levesque, and uh, Neil has a busy week uh, coming up at St. Anselm College as uh, the primary season is certainly underway. He has uh, Asa Hutchinson, Uh, Coming in from uh, Arkansas, the former Arkansas governor who served as the governor of Arkansas for the last eight years before being succeeded by Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who is uh, the governor of Arizona right now. uh, uh, Acer Hutchinson will be at uh, St. Anselm College tomorrow at 9 a.m. at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at uh, St. Anselm. Nine tomorrow. And then later in the day, the arrival of uh, Donald Trump. As uh, this is from AP, Donald Trump's uh, town hall forum on CNN. On CNN, folks, that's correct. Donald Trump's town hall forum on CNN, a, a network that Donald Trump has repeatedly bashed uh, over the years. Uh, well, that'll take place tomorrow. First uh, major television event, really, of the uh, 2024 presidential campaign. And a gigantic test for the chosen moderator, Caitlin Collins. Now, both sides of the political divide expressed suspicion when the CNN forum at the St. Anselm College was announced last week. Some Democrats questioned whether the former president should be given the airtime while Republicans wonder if a network Trump has long disparaged can be fair. Now, once it begins, Collins uh, Collins must give the audience members the chance to ask questions while determining when to step in with her own. And she'll weigh how to correct misinformation in a potentially hostile environment. Invited town hall participants are those who expect to vote in a Republican primary. Former uh, CNN Washington Bureau Chief Frank Sesno, who now uh, is at George Washington University, said it's a balance beam and it can be walked. We're going to see if Caitlin is worthy of the Olympics. Meaning, of course, in this case, the uh, presidential primary. Uh, CNN did not make Collins available to talk before the event, which is scheduled for 8 o'clock tomorrow night. And uh, the story goes on to say it speaks to uh, the stature 
of Collins at CNN now that she was given the assignment at a network with no shortage of experienced political journalists like Dana Bash, Anderson Cooper, Jake Tapper, Chris Wallace. She worked at the Daily Caller, the conservative website launched by Tucker Carlson before turning occasional guest appearances on CNN into a full-time job. She also covered the White House and became CNN's chief White House correspondent in 2021. She moved to New York late last year for a co-hosting role on CNN This Morning. For the 31-year-old Collins, now in the mix for a role on CNN's primetime lineup, uh, Wednesday's event may be an important audition. Maggie Haberman, who's a New York Times correspondent and author of the Trump biography, Confidence Man, said, and I quote, she has had a pretty meteoric rise at a young age because of her talent. She was a formidable White House correspondent, always calm under pressure, but she is also incredibly fair and facts-focused, end quote. Collins has had her turn er, uh, run-ins, I should say, with the, the Trump White House. She was barred from a Rose Garden event in 2018 when the Trump team got upset with her shouted questions in the Oval Office earlier in the day. So we'll see how it works out uh, tomorrow night. And of course, uh, during his presidency, Trump continually attacked CNN as fake news. CNN's reputation among Republicans sunk. And although the network's new management has sought to inhabit more of a middle ground politically, it's an uphill battle among his supporters. A Trump advisor, an advisor who was not authorized to speak publicly and spoke on the condition of anonymity, said CNN executives made a compelling pitch to the former president. The advisor also noted that Trump found success in 2016 by stepping outside Republicans' traditional comfort zone. Meanwhile, many Trump opponents believe a man who has continued to spread lies about fraud during his 2020 election loss to Biden doesn't deserve the primetime exposure. There's also a deep-seated suspicion dating to CNN's frequent coverage of Trump's rallies before the 2016 election, which gave a ratings boost to the network and uh, outsized airtime to the uh, first-time candidate. So we'll see how it, uh, it works out tomorrow night at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College. Lots of people surprised that uh, the marriage has taken place between Trump and uh, CNN. And it, it does appear to me and, uh, that, that CNN is looking for a more centrist approach than uh, one uh, which they've had in recent years. I remember uh, years ago, I mean, and CNN has been around now for, what, 30-plus years. When they started out, they were straight down the middle, straight down the middle when they uh, started their network under the, the guidance and influence and ownership of uh, Ted Turner. They, they, you know, and they provided the news and, you know, did it in a, a, a very good manner and without taking sides one way or the other. But then as the years passed, they, uh, you know, they 
went in the left direction. And and, and really, uh, they have had some very uh, salacious reporting over the years regarding not only Trump, but other Republicans as well. Uh, most of it not based in fact. And uh, that and as a result, their ratings have tanked. The CNN ratings have tanked. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, Fox News is the most watched cable network, period. Whether it be news, whether it be sports, whether it be entertainment, Fox News is number one in the ratings among cable news networks. Uh, CNN, MSNBC, not even close. And so uh, CNN, I, I think a very wise move. Uh, by CNN. I think it shows that they're going to give the other side, as it were, uh, an opportunity here. And also, selfishly, it's a great move for them because they know whether you love them or whether you hate them, I don't think there's anybody in between. Donald Trump attracts eyeballs. Eyeballs mean television ratings. The more Trump, the bigger the ratings. I mean, he's like the uh, the latter day Howard Cosell, let's say. Uh, Howard Cosell, for those of you who don't know, a very uh, noted and notable sportscaster during the '60s, '70s, and '80s, primarily, and very controversial. Very controversial. Many people loved Howard Cosell, as many despised him. But nonetheless, he attracted eyeballs. He got big ratings no matter what he did, whether it was his great interviews with Muhammad Ali. And they were priceless. If you never saw them, you owe it to yourself to look them up. The conversations between Howard Cosell and and Muhammad Ali, when Muhammad Ali was a very, very controversial figure, as was Howard Cosell, and they were great together. Great television pairing. Some people loved Howard Cosell. Some people hated Howard Cosell. And people felt the same way about Muhammad Ali. Uh, another uh, figure who was very controversial uh, back in the day. And so, uh, you know, whether you love them, whether you hate them, those, uh, those people that, uh, you know, attract viewers are very appealing to the television networks. Whether they do sports, whether they do news, whether they do entertainment, those people who divide us and, and uh, you know, also appeal to us in, in the same way. Uh, attract big ratings, and CNN, I think, has uh, pulled off a masterstroke here by hosting this town hall tomorrow night, uh, right in our backyard at uh, St. Anselm College. We'll take a break. It is Kale and Company live right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more. And find your plan at DeltaDentalCoversMe.com. We'll take a break. 
Kale and Company continues right here on WKXL and NHTalkRadio.com. Stay with us. We are back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. Mentioned uh, went to St. Anselm College last night to see uh, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, who has put together a, an exploratory group to see if he could be a viable candidate for President of the United States. I certainly think he is. He is a very articulate guy, has a tremendous story to tell. Uh, his grandfather picked cotton in, in South Carolina. He came up a very, through a very rough uh, upbringing, and uh, he told that story uh, last night, and he's been uh, in the House and now in the Senate for a long period of time uh, serving uh, South Carolina. And uh, he is one of those out there that uh, has, has put together, as we said, an exploratory committee to uh, you know judge his popularity and viability as a presidential candidate. And I think he's a very viable uh, candidate. And uh, I believe he said he's going to make some kind of an announcement. And I think we know what kind of an announcement that's going to be on May the 22nd. So we'll find out officially if Tim Scott is going to run for president of the United States. And my guess is it will be in the affirmative uh, that he will. So I was over at, uh, at St. A's last night. And so I had to, uh, because, you know, there's a, a Dairy Queen in the area, which, which by the way, the, uh, the Dairy Queen on uh, 2nd Street uh, in Manchester is the, the top grossing Dairy Queen in the country, not the state of New Hampshire, in the country. I don't get it, but it's not the first time. They've, they've done it two or three times. They've been the top grossing Dairy Queen in the country, and there were a lot of people there last night. Nice, uh, you know, spring evening. Uh, temperatures hovering around seventy degrees at that hour of the evening at about seven thirty. But the point is, the reason I bring it up at all is the fact that I had my uh, my radio on, uh, listening to this show, uh, the show we had yesterday with uh, Dr. Barry Taylor, repeated uh, from seven to eight. And that signal at uh, 101.9 on the FM dial booming, booming into the Dairy Queen parking lot on 2nd Street uh, in Manchester while I was having uh, a chocolate dip cone. And my good friend uh, Kitty Ray was having a uh, Heath Bar Blizzard, which was very good uh, as well. Now, if you've watched any TV over the last couple of days, any news program, uh, you have seen what took place the other day? Uh, Nikola Jokic of the Denver Nuggets and the owner, the new owner, Matt Ishbia of the Phoenix Suns. They got into it a little bit. The NBA, however, is not suspending a Denver Nuggets star Nikola Jokic for Game 5 against the Phoenix Suns. The league announced Monday that it is, uh, it's fined Jokic $25,000, which is like chump change for him. For his slight push of Suns owner Matt Ishbia in Game 4 while trying to retrieve the ball in the crowd. But he will be available to play tonight in Denver 
With that series deadlocked at two games apiece, Jokic was assessed a technical foul in the second quarter of Game 4 on Sunday when he tried to snatch the ball from Ishbia, who was sitting courtside, and hit the Suns owner with an elbow. Ishbia took to Twitter Monday morning to address the situation, and he said, and I quote, Great win for the Suns last night in an amazing series so far. That should be and is the only story. Suspending or fining anyone over last night's incident would not be right. I have a lot of respect for Jokic, and I don't want to see anything like that. Excited for Game 5. Go Suns. The end of the statement from Mr. Ishbia, who recently bought the Phoenix Suns for the price of uh, in excess of $4 billion. The fracas all began when Suns guard Josh Okogi uh, crashed into the seats while trying to save a loose ball. He landed in a group of fans on the baseline that included Ishbia, who held the basketball. And uh, Jokic went over trying to grab the ball quickly, apparently so the Nuggets could start their offensive possession when he attempted to grab it from Ishbia. The ball flew backward into the crowd, and then Ishbia was knocked backward by Jokic's elbow. But believe me, folks, it was just a little nudge. I've seen it a number of times. It was a little nudge by Jokic to Ishbia, and he flopped. Typical of the NBA. Even owners are flopping now. And Ishbia, he pulled off a, a very good, put his arms up in the air and flopped it back into a seat. It was very dramatic, but he was really just grazed by Jokic. Jokic uh, defended his actions after a game in which he had 53 points and 11 assists. He said, the, the fan put the hand on me first. I thought the league was supposed to protect us. Maybe I'm wrong. I know who he is, but he's a fan, isn't he? Uh, Nuggets coach Michael Malone said Jokic was going to get the ball, and some fan is holding on to the ball like he wants to be a part of the game. And uh, when Malone was saying that after the game, he was not aware at the time that it was the new owner of the uh, Phoenix Suns. So, And he said he really didn't care uh, that he was the, the new owner of the Phoenix Suns. At any rate, uh, the situation has been resolved. Jokic will be playing uh, tonight in uh, pivotal, pivotal Game 5 against the uh, Phoenix Suns. And after hitting an incredible 480 in his last six games, Red Sox rookie outfielder Masataki Yoshida was named the American League Player of the Week yesterday. And deservedly so. I mean, what... What a week uh, Yoshida put together uh, for the Red Sox as they uh, won eight in a row before losing on uh, Sunday in Philadelphia. Yoshida, who is currently uh, on a league-leading 16-game hitting streak, went uh, 12 for 25 last week, two doubles, two homers, eight RBIs, one walk, seven runs scored, an 800 slugging percentage, and uh, according to MLB, Major League Baseball, Yoshida is tied for the American League in hits, tied for second in runs, ranked third in batting and RBIs, fourth in total bases, tied for fifth in home runs, and is sixth in on-base and seventh in slugging since May 1st. Uh, 
And you know, last week he went uh, 28 for 64 during his hitting streak, I should say. He's hit 438, 28 for 64. And I think during that stretch, I believe he struck out twice since the start of that uh, that hitting streak. So look out, Joe DiMaggio. Your 56-game streak could be in jeopardy. Yoshida is the second member of the Red Sox to earn Player of the Week honors in 2023 following fellow outfielder Adam Duvall, who won it for his performance during the first week of the regular season. Red Sox are the first team to have multiple Player of the Week winners this season. So always uh, fun to watch Masataka Yoshida in the batter's box for the Boston Red Sox, who will open a three-game series against the very tough uh, Atlanta Braves tonight in Atlanta. And, of course, the Boston Celtics will continue their Eastern Conference semifinal series against the Philadelphia 76ers tonight. It'll be at the TD Garden. And, you know, everybody scrutinizes and analyzes, as they should, the final moments of uh, overtime in Sunday's loss to the 76ers where the Celtics could have and should have called at least one timeout. They had two during that final possession. They didn't call any. And uh, head coach Joe Mazzulla yesterday said, you know, he was wrong in saying it was perfect execution after the game on Sunday because it certainly wasn't perfect execution. They didn't even get a shot off until the uh, shot clock went off. Anyway, Celtics, Sixers tonight. Everybody analyzes the last, uh, you know, minutes of games. Celtics have to get off to a better start tonight than they did on Sunday. Sunday's start was deplorable. No reason for it unless they had a huge night in downtown Philadelphia uh, the night before. But uh, their start on Sunday was sluggish and slow, and uh, Jason Tatum couldn't throw the ball in the ocean for the first basically three quarters of, of that basketball game. Anyway, coming up. After we take a break, we'll be talking with author Corey Doctorow about his new book, Red Team Blues, if you have any interest in the technology, specifically cryptocurrency world. You might want to stay tuned. In fact, you will want to stay tuned to this edition of Kale & Company right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Don't you dare touch that dial. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Glad to have you with us today. And our guest on this segment of the show is an award-winning journalist, blogger, activist, New York Times best-selling author, Corey Doctorow. Corey, how are you today? I'm great. It's great to talk to you this morning. Well, it's great to have you on with us. Your latest book is uh, terrific, called Red Team Blues, a Martin Hench novel. And, uh, Corey, I know you, you must have had to get up early or stay up late to join us because uh, you're in California, correct? I am, but, you know, I'm on a book tour, so I'm leaving for the airport as soon as this call is over. This is when I was going to have to get up anyway. Oh, okay. I don't feel bad. <laughs> and anything for you folks anyway. Uh, right. Well, some very, very interesting dynamics uh, in this book. Cryptocurrency, grifters, crime bosses. This really is something for everybody, Corey. 
Well, and corrupt uh, U.S. three-letter agencies, a 67-year-old uh, semi-retired forensic accountant who drives around in a luxury tour bus that he got for saving a rock and roller from his corrupt manager. It really does have uh, everything. There's no doubt about it. And, and tell us about that, that main character you refer to, your, your creation of a man who's available for special jobs, uh, Martin Hench. Yeah, so Marty Hench, his origin story is that in the 80s, he went to MIT for engineering, but got so uh, obsessed with personal computers that he dropped out uh, and became a CPA. Uh, and when he was in a CPA course, he realized that everyone there was there because they were excited that spreadsheets would let them hide money. And he got excited about how he could find money because he knew he was smarter than all those people. He ends up going west to Silicon Valley, where he basically invents forensic accounting for tech firms and spends the next 40 years unwinding every Baroque scam that every tech bro who thinks he's the smartest guy in the world thinks up. Uh, and on the way, finds that his dream of tech as a force for human liberation is curdling, that it, he is becoming increasingly concerned that tech is a force for corruption, surveillance, control, all the things that we worry about now. And just as he's ready to retire, his dear old friend, who's a p pioneer in cryptography from the days when crypto meant cryptography and not cryptocurrency, calls him back for one last job because, you know, he's been um, dabbling unwisely with creating a cryptocurrency. And even more unwisely, he's hidden a back door in the system that controls the cryptocurrency in case something really bad happens so that he can have a kind of magic eraser and now that eraser has gone missing, and Marty's job is to find it. And when he does, he gets embroiled in a gang war between narcos and Azerbaijani uh, money launderers with uh, an assortment of corrupt U.S. three-letter agencies. And he's on the run for his life. But if he can survive, he gets a quarter of the money he recovered, which in this case mm. is more than a billion dollars. Uh, he and he works the the Red Team Blues is the name of the book and he he works for the Red Team as a plo, as opposed to the uh, Blue Team. What what does that all mean? Yeah, it comes out of um, the the realm of uh, military war games, which then leaks its way into strategy games and then into uh, information security. Whenever you're simulating a security exercise, someone's got to be the attacker and someone's got to be the defender. The attacker is the Red Team. The defender is the Blue Team. The defender has to make no mistakes. The attacker just has to find one mistake the defender has made and figure out how to exploit it. So as you can imagine, there's a very different mindset uh, playing the red team and the blue team. And for Marty, going out and trying to find the money that other people have stolen and hidden, he's always been on the red team. But as soon as he ends up in the crosshairs of the people whose money uh, he's, uh, he's recovered back, um, he finds himself on the blue team, which is the place he never wanted to be. Now, Martin is charged with recovering keys. What, what kind of keys are we talking about here? Yeah, so, uh, you know, cryptography, it's this uh, kind of abstract, complicated thing that a lot of us have heard of, but very few people understand. It's actually been a hot-button issue since the 1990s when uh, Bill Clinton tried to outlaw it with the clipper chip. It's a bipartisan uh, uh, delusion. There have been people trying to outlaw crypto uh, since then on both sides of the aisle. And, and for cryptography to work... You need a cryptographic system, an algorithm, an equation. You need some unscrambled text, like a message or a photo. And you need a, a unique key that you're going to use to scramble it. And if all of those things are present, and if the key never leaks, 
you can scramble a message in a way that's mathematically provable not to be unscramblable without that key. Like if you converted every hydrogen atom in the universe into a computer and then set it working trying to guess the key until the end of the universe, you run out of universe a long time before you run out of keys. But if the keys go missing, if the keys leak, if you unwisely put the keys on a server and someone steals them, or in this case, if the keys are a combination of a secret held in a laptop in a secure facility and uh, a little key fob that you need to insert in the laptop, which is pickpocketed from uh, the, the guy who uh, designed this cryptocurrency, then the keys can leak out and uh, then it's, all bets are off. And so the, the laptop that holds the keys has been stolen. That's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is, this is one of those things about, about information security. It's almost never just about information. It's all, there's always some dimension of physical security, of uh, personal security. So in this case, uh, this, this cryptocurrency, you know, it's hosted by this guy who calls himself a, a paranoid with a dirty mind who, who's thought of everything. And so he's, he's rented out a secure data facility, no Amazon cloud for him. And he's got a, a clean room in it that is fully isolated from everything else. I actually worked on some of the Snowden leaks, and I was in one of these clean rooms that uh, the journalist who'd gotten the Snowden leaks uh, had built to stop those leaks from ever leaking out. So right. this is a, uh, a, an, an electrically isolated, uh, radio-resistant room with no electrical outlets that you take a laptop out of a safe into it, and the laptop itself has had all of its uh, network uh, stuff ripped off the board with pliers, and you set it down, you work only in that table, and you make notes on paper, and then you take that back, and you put it back in the safe, and then you go back into the real world. And he thinks he's really safe, but the, the night watchman has been catfished by someone on uh, a dating site, um, that person ends up uh, opening the door for a confederate. That confederate gets into the facility, and the laptop takes a walk. And, and this book uh, can become uh, pretty gory uh, in spots. A, a little bit. There's some gore, yeah, because because yeah. you know when when um, narcos uh, think that you've been cheating them, uh, they tend to make an example out of you. Um, this is unfortunately something that is not. Uh, uh, I made up. This is something that is real and uh, a real problem uh, in many places in the yeah. world where criminals use the threat of violence and, and particularly spectacular violence, which is to say violence that makes a spectacle and sends a message as a, as a way of uh, disciplining the public and, and authorities and keeping them from, from trying to control them. But, you know, most of this book is a book about uh, games of wit. Mm -hmm. The violence is there to remind uh, the audience and, you know, the world, that those games of wits, they have real-world consequences. You know, at one point, Marty has to disappear. He's in San Francisco. The best way to disappear in San Francisco is to join the army of invisible homeless people who are simultaneously everywhere and also never seen. Tens of thousands of people in a, in a, uh, a system that is really a moral injury to everyone who's ever visited the Bay Area. And that gives me a chance to really dig into some of the... Um, contradictions of a tech sector that claims to have the answers to how we should all live in the future uh, in order to enjoy the, a better life, but who can't even clean up the mess in their own backyard, who can't even find a solution to the most basic of human problems. Where do people live? Where do people poop? What do they eat? You know, I was just in Palo Alto on this tour. Um, this is the backyard of the tech firms. 
And everywhere you go, you find broke axle RVs on the road where people are living. And these aren't unemployed people. These are the people who clean the toilets and cook the food in the tech uh, uh, firm's giant gleaming campuses. They're the only thing that stands between those tech workers and like uh, a horrible death of listeria or E. coli poisoning. And the tech sector can't even figure out how to house those people. And it really calls into question the claim that the tech sector has that if we just let them operate without regulation, without any oversight, without uh, anyone who's not uh, sharing their outlook, pushing back, that um, everything will be better for all of us. Can you hang with us for a couple more minutes? Oh, yeah, I'd be delighted to. Corey Doctorow is our guest. His new book just out a couple of weeks ago, Red Team Blues, a Martin Hench novel. And uh, we'll talk more with uh, Corey coming up right after these words. Kale and Company live right here, WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stay with us. Kale and Company live on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Joining us from California is author Corey Doctorow, and he has written a new book called Red Team Blues. And, uh, Corey, before the break, we were talking about your trip to uh, Silicon Valley where there's much wealth to be had but also uh, much despair as well, kind of a dichotomy there. Yeah, it's um, definitely the case. I mean, you know, it's not unique to Silicon Valley that we see great inequality opening up across societies. But Silicon Valley is unique in that they make this claim to owning the future, right? Their their brand is really synonymous with what the future holds. And um, they're so manifestly not good at managing even the present and honestly, some of their visions for the future are pretty weird, too. I mean, you know, as a science fiction writer, I am forever amused and mildly offended that Mark Zuckerberg has decided that the future is that uh, all of us are going to stop talking to each other with text messages on Facebook, and instead we're going to, you know, retreat to being legless, sexless, highly surveilled, low-polygon cartoon characters in a metaverse named after an idea from a satirical science fiction novel. I mean, we shouldn't have to say this, but cyberpunk science fiction is a warning, not a suggestion. Well, there are many out there, uh, Corey, who, who think that you do. You live in the future. Just just reading a couple of the uh, reviews on, on the back of the book, it says uh, Dr. O writes like somebody who's living a couple of years uh, in the future. Do you feel that way sometimes? Well, that's from Kelly Link, who's, who's a brilliant writer in her own right, has a new book out, and, and is a MacArthur winner. So who am I to argue with a certified genius? But, but um, you know, I, I, I think respectfully to Kelly that rather than living in the future, a lot of what I end up doing is living in the present. You know, I, I, one of the things that's interesting about this new book, and, and it's the first volume in a series to come out, is it's a series about a 67-year-old in Silicon Valley who's simultaneously very excited about uh, what technology could do and very frightened about what technology is doing. And it's a kind of bookend to another series I wrote called Little Brother, and these were young adult novels about a 17-year-old in San Francisco who, after a terrorist attack on his town, finds the Department of Homeland Security have turned it into a police state, and he organizes a guerrilla army of uh, kids 
who care about their freedom and who use uh, hacked Xboxes running cryptographically secured wireless networks to organize a series of actions that kick the DHS out of San Francisco and restore the Bill of Rights. And, you know, after that book came out, because it's about electronic surveillance, because it's about um, secret government programs of control, um, after that book came out, people were like, oh, this is very imaginative. And then when Snowden came out of the cold and revealed that there was all of this government surveillance, a, a lot of people were like, well, look, you, you, um, you predicted Snowden. But really what was going on is both Snowden and I were paying attention to a guy called Mark Klein. Uh, Mark Klein was a uh, 50-year AT&T uh, veteran, an engineer who worked for the firm. And in 2006, he walked into the offices of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a civil liberties group I've worked for for more than 20 years. And he had a, a big folder full of papers. And he said, my boss made me build a secret room at the Folsom Street Switching Center for AT&T, where our fiber trunk went through. We put a beam splitter in the fiber line. And we started allowing the, the um, NSA to surveil all Americans' internet traffic, which I'm pretty sure is illegal. And, you know, it was a big deal at the time. That was on the cover of the New York Times. We sued the NSA. But um, uh, people forgot it. it. It's so easy with, in this busy news cycle for things to go in one ear and out the other. So when I wrote a book about mass electronic surveillance that came out in 2008, and in 2013, when Stone made his revelations, people said I was uh, prescient. Really, what I was doing wasn't predicting the future. I was predicting the present. And, and a lot of what I think science fiction writers do is just drag our attention back to things that are already happening around us, but they're getting drowned out in the noise that, that seem important. I, I heard from reliable sources, you specifically on another interview, that you, you wrote this book in, what, six weeks? Yeah, you know, I write when I'm anxious. So uh, I got seven more books coming out after this. I got a book in September about breaking up big tech from Verso called The Internet Con. I got a book about truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias coming out in November called The Lost Cause, a novel. And then the sequel to this book, The Bezel, which is about prison tech, coming out in February. And then there's three more after that. There's, there's just a ton of these books coming out. And this one just kind of battered its way out of my fingertips in six weeks flat. And, and you know, when, you, when you're on a roll like that, you have a sense that there's something really good happening, but it's hard to know. And, and my wife, she loves my work, but she's a very busy person in her own right. She's a, she works for a tech company. She's, very, uh, she's got a very demanding job, and she can't read all my work as fast as I'd love her to. And so when I gave her the book, I said, look, honey, I know you probably won't get around to reading this whole thing anytime soon, but, but could you just, like, read the first couple of pages? Just, just let me know if you think it's, uh, if it's on the right track. And so we went to bed, and I got up at 2.30 in the morning. She was sitting bolt upright in bed with her phone in her face. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, I just had to find out how it ended. <laughs> and that's when I knew I really had something special. Even before my editor emailed me, he emailed me the next day. And with, with a four-line email, I can't say one of the words on the air. The FCC will get you in trouble. But it was, that was a blank ride. And he bought, he bought this book and two more after that. Uh, in a, and, and then another book on top of that. He bought, he did, we did a six-figure deal for four novels over three years wow. on the strength of this book. And so I knew that then that I really had something special. And I just keep hearing from readers. I got, I got like 10 emails this morning from readers saying, you know, I love this book, but I, I have to curse you because I tried reading it before bed. And now I'm all screwed up because I stayed up till four in the morning reading it because I couldn't put it down. And I'm going to I'm going to drag my butt around work tomorrow. Uh, but it was worth it. So I, I, I think that that, you know, sometimes those books that come out fast and furious, they, they, they're really uh, 
they're really terrific. Sometimes they come out fast because there's no there there. But in this case, I'm pretty confident in saying that there was some there there. And the ultimate compliment is the that your wife stayed up all night and read it. So there you go. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, she's it's been years since she was impressed with me. <laughs> so she's she's reading she's reading it. It's not because of any aura of impressiveness that that comes out of it. It's because she just genuinely is uh, engaged with it. So the good news is we'll be hearing uh, more from uh, Martin Hench in the future. Oh, yeah. So yeah. the next book, uh, The Bezel, is, uh, is all about prison tech. And again, that's ripped from the headlines. The companies like Securus that have convinced prisons to stop allowing for in-person visits and also take the libraries out of the prison and also stop allowing mail and, and books to be sent into the prison. And instead, they give prisoners these quote-unquote free tablets, these cheap Chinese tablets, and then they charge prisoners' families, you know, a hundred times more than you and I would pay for a video call or a voice call. They charge five or ten times more for e-books and audio books and, and music. And then periodically they'll change suppliers and they'll just wipe out all the music and all the books that prisoners have bought. So imagine being in prison for 20 years. Your family saves up to spend $20 on a book and then it just disappears because the company that um, sold it to you decides to change suppliers. So this is about Marty unwinding one of those scams. And you know they say there's never just one cockroach. Well, a company that's willing to do this to the ultimate captive audience is willing to, to do it to everyone. And, you know, I, 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 again, was just paying attention to the real world. And so that's how I knew that companies like Securus got caught not just spying on prisoners in, in prison. They were actually recording their phone calls with their lawyers and making them available illegally to law enforcement. Um, but that they use that same tool to run an off-the-books location tracking service that tracked all of our cell phones. Uh, and they were selling that access to cops who were accessing it without a warrant, without any records, and illegally. Uh, and so, you know, this is the, as, as Marty digs in to save his friend who's in prison for, uh, after getting set up uh, and in this, this awful situation, he discovers that the rock goes a lot further. Yeah, it's just fascinating for, for people who don't really have a full grasp of the high-tech world like myself. It is really fascinating. Would you recommend an Alexa in your home? Oh, no. I mean, thankfully, the era of that stuff is over. I mean, Amazon's basically <laughs> fired all those people who make them uh, and after they were uh, an absolute failure. I mean, the sad thing is that there are people for whom an Alexa is amazing, right? If you have Alzheimer's and the... Uh, people that you live with are sick and tired of being asked what day it is, you know, it's, it's pretty, the research is actually pretty good on this, that an Alexa that can answer those questions and help orient people who have cognitive problems, it's really great. Likewise, if you have um, uh, mob mobility disability and having home automation systems that allow you to turn on the lights without getting up or so on, it can make a really huge difference. But, you know, not just Alexa, the Google version, the Apple version, the companies that made these decided that they, they just couldn't make them without sticking in the surveillance crap that eventually made these tools so creepy that people just bailed on them. You know, the, the problem with the tech sector is that because it's been allowed to gobble up all of its competitors, you know, Apple buys 90 companies a year, Google has only invented one product in-house, Search. Everything else they've ever made in-house was a failure from their, you know, Google Reader to Google Video to Google+. Plus. And all of their successful products are products that they either cloned from someone else, like Gmail, which is a Hotmail clone, mm -hmm. or um, their video stuff, YouTube, their ad stuff, their uh, server management, calendars, all of that. These are all acquisitions. 
and and uh, the the problem is that they they just have no competition because they bought all their competitors. They have no regulation, and so they're not disciplined, right? They 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 do things that end up being bad for themselves commercially, but also end up being bad for their users, their business customers. I mean, everyone who advertises uh, using tech platforms, everyone who publishes media using tech platforms, is already understanding how much fraud there is. This is why the Texas Attorney General. And the Federal Trade Commission are suing Google and Facebook, um, and and understanding that you know it's not just that users are getting spied on in the name of selling ads. The advertisers and the media companies are getting ripped off too, because these guys just don't face any consequences for their actions. Right. Well, it's fascinating. It's been a great conversation, Corey, and I really appreciate the time. Safe travels today, and the book is Red Team Blues, and uh, thank uh, Martin Hench novel. Have to add that. Uh, Corey, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Take care. Have a great day. Corey Doctorow, Red Team Blues is the book, a Martin Hench novel. And that'll just about do it for today's edition of Kale and Company right here on WKXL. NHTalkRadio.com, presented by... Northeast Delta Dental. And tomorrow we'll talk with Chris Hatfield from SoxProspects.com and I'll talk to a gentleman who says golf saved his life. Maybe it could save yours. That's it. Kale and Company checking out for Tuesday. Join us tomorrow for another edition of the program. Thanks for being with us. Have a great Tuesday, everybody.